All right, guys, you can turn with me this morning to the Old Testament book of Zechariah. We're in chapter three of Zechariah this morning, and this is week three of our six-week study of the book of Zechariah. And after Zechariah, we'll have just a couple of weeks in the short book of Malachi, and then we will be done with all 12 books of the minor prophets that we find in the Old Testament. And just to quickly recap for us this morning, Zechariah is a priest who is declaring the word of the Lord about 20 years after the people of Judah were allowed to return to Jerusalem from exile in Babylon. And this whole book began with God, through Zechariah, calling the people to remain faithful and obedient to the Lord, unlike their ancestors had been. But last week, we saw that the people were perhaps a bit confused. And this is because there was a well-known prophecy from the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah uh, among the most significant Old Testament prophets who were prophesying during the period of the exile. And Jeremiah said that after 70 years in exile, the Lord would restore the fortunes of Israel. So where we pick up in Zechariah, it's been 70 years, and the people have now returned to the land, which is encouraging, but no fortunes have really been restored to Israel at this point, right? Like, they, they're back, but they're still subservient to another nation. This time it's Persia. The temple has not been fully rebuilt, even though they've begun the process of rebuilding the temple. And the people have no wealth or power to speak of. Um, if restoring the fortunes of Israel means something akin to returning to the time of King David, which was a time of great wealth, it was a time of peace, it was a time of geopolitical might, then Zechariah's time is certainly not that. And so the people naturally wonder, where is God? Like, has he forgotten us? Is he really going to keep his promises? Uh, has he abandoned us? What, what's going on? Why do we only have sort of part of this and not the full thing? And last week we saw that in response to these questions, Zechariah had a series of eight visions Eight night visions, as the ESV calls them. And they span from chapter 1 of Zechariah all the way to chapter 6. And these visions form a structure uh, that is particular to Hebrew literature that is known as a chiasm or a chiastic structure. It comes from the Greek word chi, or the Greek letter chi, which is just the letter X. And it's sort of a poetic structure that we run into often, particularly in the Psalms, um, but also even in the teaching of Jesus, where a series of thoughts or ideas are presented, and then they're mirrored back in subsequent passages. And so I just want to give you an example of this this morning, because I think once you start looking for this in the scripture, you're going to start to see it all over the place. And so this is an example from the Minor Prophets, from a text we've actually looked at, and this is Amos 5, and here's what it says, For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, Seek me and live. And that's sort of an introductory verse or an introductory statement here in verse 4. But then in verse 5, but do not seek Bethel and do not enter into Gilgal or cross over into Beersheba, for Gilgal shall surely go into exile and Bethel shall come to nothing. 
So this is the structure of a chiasm. Starting in verse 5, line 1, is it's about Bethel. Do not seek Bethel. Line 2 is about Gilgal. Do not enter into Gilgal. Line 3 is kind of the X in this. It is the turning point. It's about Beersheba. Then line 4 takes you back to line 2, where again we're talking about Gilgal. Gilgal shall surely go into exile, and then line five takes you all the back, all the way back to line number one. Bethel shall come to nothing. Bethel is addressed in line one. So this is the structure. It's, it's an X. It's a mirror in some ways. And the exact same thing is actually happening here in Zechariah. But rather than individual lines, as is the case here in Amos, in Zechariah, whole passages, whole visions form this chiastic structure. And it's a great um, case for why we should read larger chunks of Scripture than maybe many of us do at a time. Because more than likely, if you're only reading small snippets of the book of Zechariah, this kind of larger structure, which sort of exists at, at a meta level, at an overarching level, it might not be obvious to you. But if you read larger passages at a time, this sort of interplay, this sort of, sort of poetic structure will become more clear to you you. Um, so with all of those things in mind, uh, let's move into uh, this passage in Zechariah, which again is a part of eight visions in Zechariah, and the visions correspond just like that text in Amos we just saw. So vision one and vision eight correspond together. Vision 2 and vision 7 go together. 3 and 6 go together. And sort of the X in the middle of it are visions 4 and 5. And last week we looked at visions 1 and 8, which if you remember had to do with four horsemen patrolling the earth. And what we saw was a beautiful reminder that God would indeed fulfill his promise of restoring the fortunes of Israel. And we considered some of the ways that God has done that through Christ, how Christ is the fulfillment of those things. Um, in other words, God has kept his promises, yet he's fulfilled them in ways that maybe people didn't expect or fully anticipate, even though, as we will see in today's vision, God told the people exactly what he was going to do. He told us exactly what he was going to do. Um, have you ever had a disagreement or a miscommunication with maybe your spouse or your significant other, or maybe your kids, where you thought you had communicated something clearly, but he or she or they uh, only really seemed to hear part of the message. They didn't get the whole thing. This happens all the time for us with our kids. They love to go out to eat, as, as do we as well. Um, and so imagine if we said something like, hey guys, if you can get all of your schoolwork done and get your chores around the house done today and tomorrow, then next Wednesday, uh, we're going to go out for dinner. All they heard when I said that was something like, we're going out to eat, right? There, nothing about getting chores done, nothing about getting schoolwork done, nothing about that being something happening like next week. Right? In their mind, it's happening. It's probably happening maybe in the next five minutes, right? Like, we're going out to eat. It's definitely happening today. It's probably happening tonight. But, but what I gave them was actually a conditional statement. If these things happen, then at some point in the future, here's what's going to take place. So it was conditional. It was time-based. And, and assuming the conditions are met, 
then here's what's going to happen next Wednesday. But inevitably, everyone in my, our family, at least, this happens often, will miss the memo on the conditions and the timing, and we'll assume this is happening tonight or it's happening right now, and that leads to disappointment, doesn't it? When you are not either aware of or you haven't heard the full message, then it leads to disappointment or disillusionment, and um, they're real bummed when we remind them, no, that's not happening today, right? That's not happening tonight. In fact, if these other things don't take place, it's not going to happen at all. Um, and this is akin to what we're going to see into today's text. Uh, God tells the people that he is, in fact, going to restore their fortunes, and then in the visions we will look at today, he tells them how he is going to do it. But they really only get a part of the memo. Even though he's clear, they only get a part of it. They hear what they want to hear, and they disregard the rest. So when the promised redeemer appears, the one who comes to restore the fortunes of Israel, and through Israel the whole world, they don't see him for who he is. And so let's look at our text today. I think this will give us a better idea of what I'm talking about. Zechariah chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant, the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. The word of the Lord. So today, we get reintroduced to two figures that we first met back in the book of Haggai that we looked at a few weeks before Christmas. And um, Joshua and Zerubbabel are their names, and Joshua, who is mentioned in the passage we just read, is not the Joshua uh, who has a book named after him in the Old Testament. It's not the Joshua who led the people of Israel into the Promised Land. This is another Joshua, and this Joshua is uh, the high priest of Judah at this point in time. Um, likewise, Zerubbabel, who we'll meet in just a moment, 
is the royal heir to the throne of David. Even though there is no monarchy at this time, there is no throne at this time, if there was, he would be the guy sitting on it. Um, But as we've said before, these people are subservient to Persia at this point in history. Um, And not only that, there's, there's not really a place for these men to carry out their role if they were even able to fully be in their role. For the high priest Joshua, there is not a rebuilt temple for him to conduct worship. Um, For Zerubbabel, there isn't a palace for him to reign from or a throne or an actual throne for him to sit on. Those things simply don't exist at this time. And so even though these men are seemingly the ones who would step into those positions, they sort of exist in a state of limbo at this moment. Our first vision today that we just read is that of the high priest Joshua. And in this vision, you'll notice it's, it's again, it's heavy metaphor, right? Heavy symbolism. Joshua is standing before the angel of the Lord. And we don't really have time to get into this today, but the angel of the Lord is this recurring character that we find throughout the Old Testament. There's much speculation out there about who the angel of the Lord is. Is this somebody like Gabriel, like we meet in the New Testament? Or is this actually a pre-incarnate Jesus, as some people claim? The reality is, is we don't have a clue. Um, What we know, though, is that this angel of the Lord functions as sort of an angelic prophet. If a prophet's job is declaring the word of the Lord, then the angel of the Lord does much the same thing. And as we see here in verse 1, Joshua is standing before the Lord, and um, he's being accused by Satan. But it is the Lord who responds in verse 2, God rebukes Satan, and then the angel calls for Joshua's dirty garments, his filthy clothing to be removed, and for clean clothes to be put on him. So notice what he says. Look at verse 4 here in Zechariah 3. And the angel of the Lord said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken away your iniquity. And I will clothe you with pure vestments. So he commands for his clothing to be removed. And when this happens, he says, I have taken away your iniquity, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. Vestments being the clothing of a priest, right? Not just the clothing that you and I would wear, but the clothing of the high priest, which is very specific. If you go back into the Old Testament, if you go back into the books of Moses, uh, you learn that the priestly garments were a very particular thing that God had ordained. Joshua's filthy garments here in this vision are symbolic of sin, because in removing them, the angel says, your sin is taken away. Your iniquity is removed. And this is so similar to uh, the vision that Isaiah has in Isaiah 6. Uh, is that famous vision where Isaiah says, here I am, send me. God calls out, who will go for us? Who can we send? Here I am, send me. But Isaiah, before that happens, encounters the Lord in this vision. And he says, woe is me. Woe is me, which literally is like, oy vey. Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, 
And I dwell amongst the people of unclean lips. And in, their, in that scene, it isn't garments that are changed, but instead a burning coal that touches Isaiah's lips. And he hears much the same thing. He hears, behold, your guilt is taken away and your sins are atoned for. So here in Zechariah, Joshua is outfitted in new clothing and new vestments. Um, Zechariah, you may have noted, says, put a new turban on him as well, because the turban was a part of the vestments. And, and many scholars see these dirty garments not simply as being representative of his own sin, but as the high priest, he's essentially wearing the sin of the whole nation. Right. Remember last week um, or two weeks ago, rather, when we started this book, Zechariah, the Lord through Zechariah called the people to look back at your ancestors, look back at your forefathers, remember their sin and, and live differently. It's as if Joshua is sort of wearing this this accumulated sin, this accumulated filthiness on himself. Verse 6, the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, thus says the Lord of hosts, if, here's another conditional statement, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. So another conditional promise, like, like the analogy I gave you guys, if you will walk in my ways, if you will keep my charge, meaning if you will be obedient and keep my commandments, this is not just something that God is going to do if the people continue and persist in their past sin. No, the promise is predicated on the notion, if you return to me, I will return to you. That's how this whole book started, if you remember. That was the kind of the, 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 the overarching call that God put out to the people through Zechariah. Return to me, and I will return to you. Now remember, this is a vision, right? This isn't happening in real life. Zechariah is being told through this vision, if the nation, as represented by its spiritual leader, Joshua, if the nation will be obedient to me, then I will remove their sin and restore them. Now, look at verse 8. Don't miss the most important part here. Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are assigned. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. You'll notice in your text the word branch is capitalized. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. Suddenly, we're not just talking about Zechariah or Joshua or Zerubbabel. Suddenly, there's this new figure in the mix here, the branch. And this branch is not going to come, um, or he is going to come, but, but what he's going to do is he's going to somehow remove sin in a single day. Now this language that Zachariah is using here would have rung a bell more than likely for his hearers. It takes us back again to the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 22 ends with a prophecy 
that the offspring of King Jehoiakim, who was the Davidic king, the Davidic monarch, that the offspring of Jehoiakim will never again rule in Israel. It is a, pro- a prophecy that comes through the prophet Jeremiah. In the time of Zechariah, there is Zerubbabel, who we've mentioned, who is the Davidic heir. He is the offspring of Jehoiakim. So if the prophecy is true from Jeremiah, Zerubbabel, the heir to the throne in Zechariah's age, will never become king. Not only that, neither will anybody from his line ever become king. Instead, what Jeremiah says is another one will become king. And Jeremiah calls this new king the branch. Let me show you this. uh, Jeremiah 23 He says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called The Lord is our righteousness. So when Zechariah says there's a branch coming, that rings a bell for the people. Like it clicks with them. This is just what Jeremiah said would happen. That that the real heir to the Davidic throne, Zerubbabel, he's never really going to be king. And none of his descendants are ever going to be king. Instead, the the true Davidic king, in many ways the new and better David, is going to come. And unlike the previous kings, he's, he's actually going to be a truly righteous king in all ways. And he will fairly execute justice and righteousness in the land. In fact, that will come to define him. Like, that will be how people describe him. The Lord is our righteousness. It's this branch figure that the people will come to long for. The returned people, that they'll they'll come to, like, long for his coming and look forward to his coming, and they will come to call him the Messiah, the Savior, the one who is going to come and truly restore the fortunes of Israel. Now, let's look briefly at the corresponding passage to this. Remember the chiastic structure. So it's not just this one vision. It's also the corresponding vision. We looked at chapter 3. Let's look at a piece of the next vision in chapter 4, starting in verse 8. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house, this house being the temple. So the people have returned, right? They started rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem, but they've really only laid the foundations at this point. They haven't completed it. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. 
For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. So these two men who are essentially the leaders of Judah at this point, one vision involves Joshua the high priest, the next vision involves Zerubbabel, the heir to the throne, and both of these men were charged by God. If you go back to Haggai, which we read, they were both charged by God with rebuilding the temple. What, what do I want you to do as leaders among the people? Rebuild my house. This was their task. But as we've said, the rebuilding process had languished. It had begun, but then it had sort of stalled out. So again, just like he did through Haggai, again, God is reaching out through a prophet to say, not only has Zerubbabel begun the building of the temple, but he will also complete it. So when is this going to happen? It's going to happen in Zerubbabel's lifetime, Zechariah says. He will complete it. And um, even though many of you have despaired at at the times that we're living in and the season of life that we're currently experiencing, which you might think of as an age or a period of small things, is what he says, It's not a period of glory. It's not a period of wealth. It's not a period of power. It's a period of small things. He says, you're going to rejoice when you see Zerubbabel holding the plumb line, meaning you're going to rejoice when you essentially see him placing the final stone on the temple and and holding that plumb line up to it and going, it's plumb. It's, it's, It's level. It's finished. You're going to see this happen, and you're going to rejoice and give God praise. It's, it's good news, again, for the people. And by the way, this absolutely came to pass. If you remember, Zechariah started this whole book by giving us a very specific date. Um, he said he was writing in the second year of the Persian king Darius. Um, and even though at that point in time, building had stalled out on the temple, the Persians actually began providing funding and resources and manpower for the temple to be completed, something that was truly like unheard of in the ancient world, that the people who had been conquered would then be resourced by the conquering government to complete their own temple for their own religious practice. Just didn't happen. And um, you can actually go read about this in Ezra chapter 6. The book of Ezra corresponds with Haggai and Zechariah that we've been reading. And so you can go read about how this all actually came to pass and what led Darius to provide funding and resources for the temple to be finished. Um, And what we learn in Ezra is that it was finished in the sixth year of Darius. So here... Where we began in Zechariah, it's the second year of Darius. The temple is completed only four years after this, which is incredible. So go read Ezra 6 when you have a moment and uh, just kind of marvel at what the Lord is able to do. But needless to say, following Zechariah's vision, the temple goes from being a few stones on a foundation to being a completed structure. And not only is it completed, but the Persians actually return 
the artifacts that they had stolen or that the uh, Babylonians had stolen from the temple. So not only is it rebuilt, but many of the artifacts that were looted are returned to the temple and it is again restored. I mean, it's just really incredible. So uh, here's a lesson from all of this for us this morning. There is strong imagery here in Zechariah that we've seen over and over again that points to God's complete power and sovereignty. Um, We looked at the four horsemen last week that were going out to the four corners of the earth to patrol the earth, representing God's complete power over all creation, God's sovereignty. Uh, Today we see this stone with seven eyes, which again points to God's uh, vision, God's ability to see all things, God's knowledge of all things. He is fully in control, I think is a big point that Zachariah is trying to make. But don't allow that reality, don't allow the reality of God's sovereignty to lead you to believe that all you need to do is like let go and let God, which we like to say today. That all you need to do is just sit back and allow God to do his work. That that God's doing it all, he doesn't have anything for you to do. Right? He is so powerful. He's so uh, omnipotent. He's so over and above everything. What am I? I I'm just going to let God do what God can do. No, the word that comes up over and over and over again here in Zechariah is the word if. It's the word if. If you, Judah, will do this, then God will do this. If you will return to me, then I will return to you. Or put another way, um, or yeah, just to insert that word if into all of that. Don't assume that what God wants for you is for you to just sit back and do nothing. There are two things that are simultaneously and sort of paradoxically true in this passage. One is that only God can remove the filthy garments that Joshua is wearing in this vision. Only God is capable of taking those fully off of him and and putting new unblemished vestments on him. Um, But he also wants the people to be engaged in the process or the task of, of trying to remove the garments of sin. Even though they can't fully do it, we can't fully do it, do it perfectly. So only God can take them away, and yet he also wants us to be engaged in the task of removing sin from our lives. Paul encapsulates this for us in Romans 8. And here's what he says, Romans 8, 13 and 14. He says, for if you live... According to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Again, it's a conditional statement. Like, if you live according to the flesh, you're going to die. But if by the Spirit... You put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Life according to the flesh is life my way, right? Um, It's doing what I want, when I want, how I want. Life according to the Spirit, though, 
is life that has been returned to the Lord. I've given him the reins. It's when my life is his and not mine. And this is the call. While you and I are incapable of fully cleansing our own sin, God is calling us to put ourselves in the position of being led by the Spirit, a position of humility, a position of need. And Scripture suggests that you and I, just like the ancient Israelites, have a choice to make here. Either you are going to listen to your own voice and thus continue in your own sin, or you're going to put yourself in the position of listening to the voice of the Lord, which you can only do through the Spirit. Like if we're actually going to listen to the voice of God, the Scripture suggests it's because He's given you His Spirit. Remember, look to the past and live differently. That was Zechariah's call to the people of Israel. And, and what will the Spirit lead you to do? He's going to lead you to put to death the deeds of the body. And Paul says, what does it mean to be a son of God? Or in other words, what does it mean to be the people of God? Paul says, all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Those who are continually seeking to listen to his voice and not their own intentionality is key here. Do you or I listen to his voice perfectly? No, of course we don't. And for that, there is the gospel hope that through Christ, even though we are imperfect listeners and imperfect in our obedience, God has grace for us through Christ. But those who have no intention of listening to the Lord are living according to the flesh. And Paul says, you will die. Like he doesn't really mince words. You want to live? Here's the path of life. You want to die? Here's the path of death. Because your hope is in yourself and not in the one who can actually remove the garments of sin from you and give you perfect, clean garments, if, if your hope is in yourself and not in the branch who can literally wipe out sin in a day, you will die. Zechariah points us not to a human king. This is why he's telling the people, our hope is not Zerubbabel. He points us not to a president, not to an emperor, not even to a priest. He points us to the branch. And it is through this branch, this Messiah, that true justice and righteousness will be executed in the land. If you want hope, if you want a future... If you want your sin to be put to death, right? If you truly want what the Lord is able to provide you with, then following yourself, your vision, your path, your truth is the path of death. If you want what he's offering to you, it is only found in the branch. I am the way and the truth and the life, Jesus says. No one no matter who you are, comes to the Father except through me. Let us go to him in prayer this morning.
Father, we thank you for the truth of your Holy Scripture today, and we pray, God, that you would interpret it in our minds and in our hearts. God, in the midst of heavily symbolic and metaphorical visions, we pray, God, that you would bring clarity to us and that you would show us and convince us of the beauty of the hope that we find in Christ. Not so that we might be simply more religious people, but so that we truly might become more like him, so that we might come to emulate him in our lives, so that his kingdom might come here on earth as it is in heaven. Father, would you reveal to us this morning the ways in which we are putting our hope and trust in ourselves? And God, would you open us, open our ears and our hearts to truly listen to your Holy Spirit? And God, give us hearts that desire to be obedient to the things we hear. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. Stand with us, guys.